Psychological Warfare by Paul M. A. Leinbarger The Limitations of Psychological Warfare, Part 2 Security Procedures Security procedures for psychological warfare involve the usual common-sense precautions which apply to all operations and which may be summarized in the following rules. 1. Classification should be kept at an absolute minimum. No information should be classified unless there are genuinely strong reasons for supposing that it would benefit the enemy. Classification and declassification should be the responsibility of designated officers trained for the task. In World War II, many American civilians classified information recklessly, with the result that all classification became a subject of disrespect. The author once found a highly classified inter-allied plan in the hands of an elderly woman stenographer in Washington, who safeguarded the information by leaving the papers in a desk drawer which had no pull. The drawer had to be opened with a nail file, and that fact comprised the security. 2. Security should apply, generally speaking, to units as a whole, taking working units up to the limit of face-to-face -face working acquaintance as a base. It is unsound procedure to give certain individuals a higher level of information than others, since the privileged individuals will be tempted to display their inside knowledge, and the underprivileged individuals will be goaded by unwholesome, resentful, and acute curiosity. Either the entire unit should be given the information, or denied it. 3. Security should not be applied for editorial purposes. Censorship is a separate function. Improper security procedures, vesting arbitrary powers in stated officers, may tempt the security officer to express his personal, literary, artistic, or political preferences under the guise of maintaining security. The inevitable consequence is the breakdown of both security and of procedure. Censorship should be applied in conformity with national or theater censorship policies. Review and estimate of radio or leaflet output is another function. 4. Security for printed materials is easy enough to maintain. The leaflets can be sent to the G2 to check, or wherever else security functions may be vested. Radio security is another problem. Experience in World War II indicates that spot news cannot wait for routine security but must be processed through. Two types of control supplementing one another are desirable. Security liaison on a 24-hour basis should be available to the radio operatives for the rapid processing of military news. The security duty officer should be indoctrinated with an attitude of cooperativeness, based on an understanding of the value of propaganda, and should conceive it as his mission to explain the needs of radio propaganda to his superiors, rather than taking the attitude of being superior to the radio operatives. There is a sound psychological reason for this. The presence of a sympathetic security officer 
will increase cooperativeness on the part of the propaganda broadcaster. An unsympathetic one will merely maintain the official dignity of his office and position. High morale on the part of script writers is more important than high morale of security officers. Security supervision can be exercised by monitoring facilities, that is, the security officers can equip themselves with a good radio receiver and listen to the broadcasts without ever meeting the broadcasters. A critical frame of mind on the part of such security personnel is desirable. Unlike liaison officers, they need not be cooperative. Since their criticism applies after the operation, they can afford to apply rigorous standards. During most of 1942 and 1943, no one in Washington had any idea of what actually went out from San Francisco. The civilians who broadcast to Japan received elaborate orders to do this and to do that, but the Washington policymakers did not know what was going on the air. On one occasion, the civilian propaganda broadcasters told the army in Washington that the information was too highly classified to be released or circulated. The result was that army and navy found out what OWI was doing by receiving reports from listeners in the Pacific. Security liaison can check propaganda output in the process of transmission. Security supervision can check the output after it goes on the air, and can transmit through channels recommendations for punitive or corrective action. The final military connection should exist for an all-military psychological warfare group in the person of a responsible commanding or executive officer. For a civilian group functioning under military control, the military connection should lie in the hands of an officer capable of watching a great deal and of saying little. Attempts by security to act as propagandists have been found to be as disastrous as the efforts of operators to get along without security. Media Limitations Psychological warfare should not broadcast into areas in which radio sets are unknown. Psychological warfare should not drop books to illiterates. These rules seem obvious, but they have often been violated. Psychological warfare should not assume that an extensive news or morale campaign is going to achieve the desired results unless there is trustworthy intelligence to the effect that propaganda is getting through. It is ridiculous to broadcast to the masses of a country when the masses are known not to have radio facilities. This was done in the anti-Japanese broadcasts of OWI, at least in the early part of the war, in which mass audience soap operas and popular music were sent to Japan on the shortwave. This, despite reports that shortwave sets were almost unknown outside governmental or plutocratic circles. What was known was that the Japanese government itself had listening facilities, and that the content of American broadcasts was relayed through Japanese military and governmental groups. The propaganda, to fit the medium radio, should have been designed 
to affect the persons actually reached, and not an audience known to be out of reach. The mere fact that enemy counter-propaganda mentions one's own material is nothing more than a professional exchange of compliments. Goading the enemy radio into a reply may be fun, but unless non-propagandists are known to be listening, the fun is expensive and unprofitable. It is really fun, though. The author suggested in the spring of 1942 that the San Francisco radio carry an item to the effect that American art lovers hoped the Japanese would move their priceless books and paintings away from the great cities. This was preparation for eventual nagging on the topic, the air raids will get you if you don't watch out. The radio civilians in San Francisco put the item on the air. Nothing was heard from the Japanese on the subject. Four days later, Radio Luxembourg, then under Nazi control of course, broadcast in German to Europe that a spokesman for the beastly American Air Ministry had told the Japanese that the Americans planned to destroy cultural monuments. The Nazi commentator added that this was characteristic of the actions of uncivilized Americans. New York picked up the German broadcast. The author enjoyed seeing his item go all the way around the world, but in retrospect, he wonders whether he did any good other than to please himself. He did do the actual harm of giving the Nazis another point to distort. Media consist simply of the facilities possessed. These are, most commonly, 1. Standard wave radio, 2. Shortwave radio, 3. Loudspeakers, 4. Leaflets, 5. Pamphlets, 6. Books, 7. Novelties. The limitations consist simply of applying the right medium at the right time. Radio broadcasts need be made only when receiving sets are known to exist. Written material should be dropped only to areas in which at least some people can read. The OWI in China, at the request of CBI Forward Echelon Headquarters, made up the leaflet showing pictures only. This was designed for the aboriginal hillmen between China and Tibet to tell them to rescue downed American pilots. Broadcasting to these people would have been as profitable as spitting in the ocean. None of them could read, much less understand, radio. The probable number of listeners or readers should be calculated conservatively, taking enemy policing, amount of enemy interest, customs of the people, tension among enemy troops or civilians and other appropriate factors into account. Occasionally, propaganda media exceed the expected limitations. The Americans and British dropped leaflets on Berlin. The leaflets had little key numbers in the corners showing to which series they belonged and could thus be arranged in series. The Germans prohibited civilians from picking up the leaflets. The Nazi authorities followed up the prohibition by sending the Hitlerjugend and Hitlermädel out to pick up the leaflets and turn them in for destruction. The boys and girls did their job with gusto. 
vast quantities were turned in for destruction. What the Nazis discovered too late, too late, was that the schoolchildren had begun collecting the leaflets using the key numbers to make up perfect sets. Some numbers were rarer than others, so that the Hitlerite children swapped Allied leaflets all over Berlin, trying to make up attractive albums. Mother and father, who did not dare pick the leaflets up off the street for fear the Gestapo might be watching, found a convenient file, reasonably complete, in the room of little Fritzel or Ermintrude. The most hopeful British or American planner could not have counted on such a happy result. Maximum Performance of Personnel Another limitation to be found in any psychological warfare operation is that imposed by the types of personnel available. It would be a rash commander who assumed that he had air support because he saw airplanes without knowing whether air crews were available. A microphone does not make a propagandist. Personnel using the speaking voice have to be good speakers. Merely knowing the language is not enough. Writing personnel must be up to the level of professional writers. On the other hand, the available personnel must not be driven above its limits of performance. Often, an attempt to do a too professional job will defeat the propaganda. When the Japanese pretended to be perfectly American and used the corny, obsolete slang of the 1920s, they aroused more contempt than they would have done had they confined themselves to rather bookish, plain English. The psychological warfare operation must be gauged to the personnel facilities no less than to the material facilities. In China, the author sat in with an expert on medieval and modern Japanese art, who was writing leaflets which were to be dropped on the Japanese garrisons of the Yangtze cities. The expert wrote pure, dignified Japanese, but the Chinese-Japanese language experts brought up the point, would the Japanese common soldier understand this kind of talk? For a while, we had no plain-spoken Japanese at hand, and we had to send our Japanese leaflets from Chongqing up to Yan'an, where the Japanese communists read the leaflets and wrote back long, detailed criticisms. Whenever the politico-military situation permits, it is sound procedure to check output with live enemies, either interned civilians or captured military personnel. A shrewd interrogator can soon find out whether the comments from the enemy jury are honest or not. Intelligent psychological warfare procedures have often turned liabilities into assets. Absence of a good orchestra has compelled propagandists to make up current music schedules by recording enemy musical programs, rebroadcasting them with new spoken commentary. Failure to obtain native speakers, such as genuine homegrown Japanese or Chinese with the properly slurred Wu dialect, has led to the use of substitutes that proved better than the original. There is no point in trying to establish rapport with the enemy unless you talk 
his language with effortless perfection on the one end of the scale, or else admit that you really are a foreigner on the other end of the scale. It is easier to build up the image of a trustworthy enemy than it is to create trust in a traitor. Frequently, the attempt to talk the enemy's own language is less successful than a frank acceptance of handicaps. In actual practice, this means that either A, the speaker should be authentically perfect in use of the enemy language, whether spoken or written as script, or B, the speaker should make no effort to conceal his foreign accent. In British broadcasts to Germany, for example, it was found to be desirable for the radio announcers to have British accents in their German, rather than the Viennese or Jewish lilt which many of them did have. A Nazified audience was so infected with anti-Semitism that no Jewish speaker could carry much weight, no matter how cogent his arguments nor how eloquent his appeals. The British tone in the voices of other speakers actually helped carry conviction. The Germans were prepared to listen to a genuine Britisher, and might have been disappointed if he had spoken letter-perfect German. Furthermore, with the perfect speaker of the enemy language, there is always the question, what is that guy doing over there? A traitor is less appealing than an open enemy spokesman. A traitor has to be sensationally good in order to get across at all. Lord Haw Haw was one of a kind, but he seems to have had genuine theatrical talent, along with a crazy zeal which persuaded his hearers that, though he was on the wrong side, he did believe his own line. The perfect speaker, whether enemy renegade or friendly linguist, has an inglorious role at the beginning of war, when enemy morale is high, and the enemy population has not had time to think over the problem of changing sides. Only toward the end of the war, or in any morale downgrade, the man who says, come on over, see, I'm here, it's fine, has a chance of being believed. The propaganda administrator must use his personnel thoughtfully. It is a waste of talent and, in advance field units of life as well, to impose tasks which operatives cannot handle. An American Nisei from California should not be asked to talk slangy edoko Japanese. A soldier detailed to psychological warfare because of some special linguistic qualification should not be considered a great journalist, radio commentator, or actor just because he speaks the right language. If he is given a microphone, and the feeling of having an audience, one that cannot write adverse fan mail, it will be easy for the average man to overestimate the effect of his own talk. The intelligent officer tries to see his staff as the enemy would see them. He keeps their limitations in mind. If they speak the enemy language perfectly, they fall under suspicion as traitors. If they speak it poorly, they may sound like bunglers or jackasses. Nevertheless, propaganda must come from men, and through words written by men, and the flavor must be fitted to the situation. 
Advanced planning should therefore consider the available personnel as an actual factor in estimating the situation. Counter-propaganda Counter-propaganda could be listed as a limitation as the enemy combat strength is sized up in physical warfare. This, however, is one of the points at which psychological warfare differs from other forms. If the propaganda message is worth putting across, it need not be geared to what the enemy is saying. Enemy propaganda should, in well-conducted operations, be taken into account only when it becomes an asset. That is, the enemy need only be heeded when he tells a whopping lie, or comes forth with a piece of hypocrisy so offensive to his own people that it needs little improvement to be adapted for counter-propaganda. Most enemy themes are beyond reach, especially those of inter-ideological warfare. The Nazis and Russians made the best propaganda against each other when they got down to the basic necessities of life, not when they were trying to weave fine-spun theories about each other's way of thinking or of life. Refutation is a joy. It is delightful to talk back. But the best propaganda is only incidentally counter-propaganda. It uses enemy blunders and counteracts enemy success by building up unrelated successes of its own. This does not mean that propaganda analysis is not needed. Somewhere in every psychological warfare unit, there must be an intelligence group servicing the operation. If, for example, the enemy has announced that the candy your aviators are dropping is poisoned, and has proved it by dropping some of your candy made by his black operations boys and actually poisoned, there is no point in calling him a liar. You may not know for some time whether poisoned candy has been dropped or not. If the enemy commander has shown his troops photographs of prisoners whom your side has taken and murdered according to his well-staged photos, it is not a good idea to ask people to surrender without sending along equally convincing pictures of well-cared-for prisoners. If the enemy alleges that you and your allies are rioting in the streets, or stealing each other's womenfolk, or that one of you is doing all the fighting while the other sits around in safe staging areas, it may be a good idea to send along some leaflets showing inter-allied cooperation on your side, or to run a few radio shows on the subject. This consists merely of reckoning the enemy propaganda as part of the psychological warfare situation, and of using the enemy as part of the background to your own advantage. The moment you start letting him take the initiative, your propaganda wags along behind his. Tell his people something he can't deny. Let him sit up nights worrying about how he will counteract you. Make him drive his security officers crazy, trying to release figures that will please your G2 in order to reassure his home audience. Really good propaganda does not worry about counter-propaganda. It never assumes that the enemy propagandist is a gentleman. He is, by definition, a liar. Your listeners and you 
are the only gentlemen left on earth. End of section 7